0: Hi, my name's India. This is Be More Orca, Buck the Menopause. Now, I'm not a medic, or an expert, or a celebrity. I'm just going through it myself. I was totally blindsided by my symptoms. I knew nothing about this stage of my life. And then I discovered neither did any of my friends. So I'm on a mission to find out everything I can, explore every avenue to help us manage our symptoms and get our lives back on track. In this episode, I'm back talking to Dr. Katie about some of the alternatives to HRT that your GP can prescribe. And she casts her medic's eye over some of the herbal remedies, how CBT might be a game changer, and why lifestyle changes are the real alternatives that we all need to embrace. Dr. Katie, it's lovely to have you back. And today we're talking about alternatives to HRT. Now, as the research and conversation around HRT is changing, thankfully, and hopefully I think it's becoming less scary for a lot of women, it's still important to look at the alternatives, isn't it, for those who choose not to or can't take HRT?
1: Absolutely, because not all women want HRT. And I think this is an important thing to convey. It's not that we all should take
0: HRT. It's what's right for the individual woman. Exactly. Personal choice. So you opened the Oxford Menopause Clinic two years ago now and am I right that you still work as a GP for the NHS? I do and I also lead a community gynae service in
1: Oxfordshire which is an NHS women's health service, sort of an intermediate between primary care and secondary
0: care. I'm interested to know what alternatives you offer women in your clinic. Shall we start with the medical alternatives? Yeah, it's a good starting point and actually
1: indeed you've touched on a really key point here that but- women will come to see me, whether it's NHS or privately, in my menopause specialist role to explore options. And it's really important that all those options are discussed. And I'm seeing more and more women in my, particularly in my private clinic, who've maybe been uh, diagnosed with a hormone sensitive cancer, for example, breast, ovarian or womb cancer. And for those women, using HRT may not be a good option for them. I say may because it depends on lots of different factors. But for the majority of women who've got cancers that were driven by hormones giving hormone increases the risk of recurrence of those cancers. So we explore the non-hormonal options with those ladies as a first line option in order to then reduce the risk that HRT may pose for them. That doesn't mean that they all can never, ever have HRT and not consider it because there are small numbers of women who do still consider HRT and take HRT even when it may be not the best thing to do, but that's their choice ultimately. But no, we offer lots of different alternative therapies in the clinic and it's important those different options are explored.
0: So what are the medical alternatives that you can offer? So the first word I'm going to just throw out there is antidepressants
1: and then I'm going to get you to just forget that word for a minute. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's this myth with antidepressants because antidepressants are often given to women incorrectly for mood disturbance at the menopause in women who could quite happily have HRT and where mood disturbance is part of a whole mix of symptoms that are forming their perimenopause or menopause experience where HRT would be the better option. But the medication we prescribe for women who would be advised not to have HRT or who choose not to have HRT are treatments that where their main purpose isn't menopause treatment, but when they were given to patients for other conditions like mood disturbance, like pain control, there were side effects that were positive in helping those women with their menopausal symptoms. So it's not that the treatment has a primary role for you're depressed, you need an antidepressant. That's not what we're using it for. It's saying antidepressants have been shown to improve menopausal symptoms like flushes, like sweats, like insomnia, like mood change, but we're using them For menopausal symptoms, not as an antidepressant in that circumstance. And so what would they be? So typically, the types of medication, if we talk about maybe the antidepressant group for the moment, these are the drugs that some studies have shown improvement in hot flushes and sweats, particularly in up to maybe 50-60% of women using these treatments. These are not small numbers of women noticing improvements. We use drugs like SSRIs, which improve the level of serotonin floating around in our bloodstream.
0: Okay, for the layperson amongst us, SSRIs, SSRIs. So that's to do with increasing serotonin, which is the happy hormone, yes?
1: Yeah. So they basically block how quickly serotonin is metabolised and absorbed. So it floats around the brain cells and in the blood circulation a lot longer. I'll give you a couple of names. Paroxetine, fluoxetine are the traditional ones we're all familiar with. Um, There's also another group which, instead of acting on serotonin receptors, act on noradrenaline receptors. And that also has a benefit for flushes and sweats. Those two drugs are very, very similar. And drugs that belong to the noradrenaline group are things like venlafaxine. That's another typical antidepressant. May people will be familiar with that name. But these groups of drugs are all really quite effective at controlling flushes and sweats and often improve insomnia as well.
0: And you say it was a, a byproduct of their actual usage. Why do they help with hot flushes and night sweats? So it's all to do with the way these
1: hormones and these chemicals interact with our temperature regulatory control, I suppose. That's the key area. The the issue with these drugs is because there's this huge stigma with prescribing them for non-mood disturbance, lots of women are very anxious about taking them. But if you think about the type of women who maybe these have been prescribed for historically, they were often perimenopausal or menopausal women with mood disturbance and may have gone back to their GP and said, actually you didn't necessarily make my mood better, but you made my flushes and sweats better. And this is all when this sort of evidence came about of looking at these different hormones, chemicals, and the way these other symptoms that we're experiencing menopause are addressed.
0: And just to be clear, we aren't saying to people when their GP says, actually, I think you're just depressed when you go in and say, I feel anxious, I feel low mood. The perimenopausal symptoms, we're saying these are specifically for treating hot flushes, night sweats, they don't help with the low mood and anxiety or do they because they are antidepressant. They will. They will have that other benefit as well. And that's often
1: where they help with things like sleep as well, because often when we're quite anxious, our sleep can be affected. But it's the primary indication is often in eliminating flushes and sweats. Remember, flushes and sweats have that domino effect, don't they? They wake us in our normal sleep pattern. That becomes intrusive. It means we're not rested. It means we're fatigued. We're low in energy. And the dose of these drugs that often improve the flushes and sweats is often a lot lower and the dose at which the really significant mood benefits are achieved. So sometimes just a tiny dose of these treatments helps to reduce the severity and the frequency of flushes and sweats. For example, a lady that I've seen went from sort of nine flushes a night down to two flushes a night. So instead of having virtually no restful sleep... She was then sleeping for four to six hours in one go. The transformation that made on her quality of life was quite remarkable.
0: Yeah, I bet. And so it's not a high enough dose to make you feel out of it because I think that's what people worry about with antidepressants, isn't it? That you're sort of wandering around in this slightly foggy haze and, you know, it sort of stops you from engaging in life. It's a very low dose.
1: Absolutely. Conversely, the higher you go up, particularly with the SSRIs, the ones that boost serotonin, if you go high dose on those because you might do because you're depressed, if they used to treat depression, that can actually make you start to flush and sweat in a woman who isn't menopausal at all. So there's that fine balance between giving enough that
0: controls menopausal symptoms and improves them, but then not going too high. And so that is something that's quite a balancing act then. I personally would think, oh right, antidepressants, you're just given a pill, there you go, go away. And that's why sort of doctors, GPs, that feel that they haven't got a an enormous menopause understanding, feel safer, saying I'll give you antidepressants rather than HRT. But you're saying actually it still needs to be a very fine balancing act in what you're prescribing.
1: It does. It does. And the balance is the side effects. So, for example, that venlafaxine is another one. And often you need fairly modest doses of venlafaxine to improve flushes and sweats but go too high and then that can make women feel more anxious or more sweaty or more flush. So it's it's not a case of just increasing the dose, it's about what works. And, and the nice thing about these different treatments is that you can try one for a period of time. If it doesn't improve things, you can try a similar drug or a different group of drug and it would potentially still improve symptoms even if the other one didn't.
0: And so most of these medical alternatives, they're to treat hot flushes and night sweats? Predominantly, but they also, the groups of drugs that we're
1: looking at, so we've talked about antidepressants, but we also use some pain modulatory drugs. So these are drugs that affect interpretation of pain, pain receptors. They also have been shown to improve flushes and sweats to a degree and often improve insomnia through the fact that you're waking less frequently and also then the energy levels improve. So it's not just one symptom, it's the knock-on effect that that improvement in that
0: one symptom then has. I was looking on the website that you sent me very kindly. And clonidine, is that right? That's a heart pressure pill. It, well, it's not used for that anymore because it's not really for blood pressure. It's an
1: alpha blocker. Our blood vessels around our body and our heart muscle have different receptors. And a lot of people will be familiar with the term beta blocker.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard of beta blocker, not heard of alpha blocker. Well, you've got beta blockers. That's the olols
1: group, propranolol, bisoprolol, carvedilol. These are all the drug names for beta blockers. Alpha blockers are also uh, drugs that historically were used to treat high blood pressure because your blood vessels and your, your cardiovascular system can be impacted by the effect of blocking those alpha receptors, a bit like the beta blockers block the beta receptors. But they're not brilliant at controlling blood pressure. So they're very rarely used these days. But again, similar thing. You've got high blood pressure, have some clonidine. Well, that's great, doctor. But actually, you fixed my flushes and sweats as well. I have to say I've used clonidine over the last decade in women who maybe shouldn't or choose not to take
0: HRT. And the benefits I've seen have been very limited. Oh, OK, so it, it wouldn't be your first choice because it's quite high up on the NHS list of alternatives, as is tibolone. Yeah, tibolone's a bit different.
1: Tibolone is a drug that has estrogen-like, progestogen-like and testosterone-like properties. So you can't really include that in the alternatives to HRT because it's not advisable if you've had a history of hormone-sensitive cancer.
0: Wow. So the NHS website, literally the first thing on the list of medical alternatives is something that actually should be in with HRT. I mean, it's a similar
1: drug. It's not the same as HRT, but we should treat it within that group. It shouldn't be really in the absolutely fine if you've had breast cancer category, because that would not be correct.
0: Okay. And Why do women prefer to come to you for antidepressants or another pill rather than taking HRT? Is it just... Women who shouldn't be taking estrogen based HRT? Or is there a a sense that actually they're safer drugs? They don't mind the medicalization of their menopause. These are drugs they feel more confident in.
1: I think that's completely true, both counts. I've got the groups of women who maybe HRT is not the safest option for them and they don't want to increase the risk of cancer recurrence. And then women who maybe have concerns whether that's personal history whether it's family history and I think the the really important thing as a menopause specialist is to respect the decision of the patient because I'm here to provide evidence and information so that you have a validated risk benefit discussion and I think that often doesn't happen because of time constraints or because of not seeing somebody who knows what they're talking about and perhaps that's what I have a little bit more time privately to explore is really saying, look, these are the options. Here's HRT. These are the risks and benefits. This is what it would help with. Here's non HRT alternative options. And these are the risks and benefits and what might help you. But it's very interesting how many women who come to me thinking, I don't want you to prescribe HRT. And they'll often come in at the beginning of the consultation. I don't want HRT. I'm here to talk about the alternatives because I can't find any information anywhere. At the end of the conversation, I will then say, So what would you like to do? Well, actually. I'd like to try some HRT, and it's not always that clearly, but it's really important that you give all options. The same with women who've had hormone-sensitive cancers. I will say I'd really strongly encourage you not to have HRT, but then maybe that woman who's had such debilitating symptoms that life's not worth living, who chooses to take that risk of recurrence
0: of their cancer because quality of life is then so impaired yeah that is the key personal choice isn't it and I was going to say I presume if women are coming to you in your menopause clinic that they're mainly coming for HRT but is that not the case are there women who are just saying I can't find any information and I have to say as we've just discussed my limited look online it's already contradicting itself as to things that you wouldn't recommend
1: completely and I think there's three groups of women there's women who know what they want they've done their research they're keen to explore HRT and they want lots of different information about it the women who've maybe aren't being offered alternatives or are really anxious because they've maybe been told by oncologists when they've had their cancer treatment you will get menopause symptoms but I'm afraid that's part of the fact that you've survived your cancer treatment and then there's the group of women who say actually I'm coming for a discussion to be armed with the information so I feel prepared I'm not bothered by symptoms at the moment but I want to know what my choices are. And I've seen more and
0: more of those, which I think is brilliant because... Clearly, the menopause message is being distributed. That is amazing. Yes, I must say, it didn't even cross my mind until it hit me like a ton of bricks. So uh, I'm impressed that there are women out there who are forearming themselves. And you wanted to talk about some of the vaginal symptoms. So that's the other element. So you've got your
1: systemic menopausal symptoms from estrogen deficiency. So that's your mood, disturbance, sleep, joints, hair, skin, nails, flushes, sweat, etc., then you've got vaginal symptoms. And vaginal treatments aren't just oestrogen pessaries, although they're really, really effective at treating vaginal atrophy, thinning and fragility of the vulval vaginal tissues after menopause when oestrogen levels decline. What's really important to establish here is that women who are told you can't have HRT because you've had hormone-sensitive cancers sometimes can still safely use vaginal oestrogen treatments. The difference here is is that when we use a patch, a gel, a tablet, a spray, it's absorbed into our bloodstream and that then exerts its oestrogen effects all over the body. If we just put oestrogen into the vagina, it's just acting locally. And for some women who've had hormone sensitive cancers, not all, but some can safely use some low dose vaginal oestrogen under the care of their doctor or menopause specialist or oncologist advice. So that's still an option for some women. The other thing to say is that um, there are lots of other vaginal treatments to use alongside vaginal oestrogen or on their own. And I think we are generally pretty bad at neglecting our vaginas and our vulvas. Yeah. <laughs> the number of ladies where I say, do you use face cream? Yes, you know, this beautiful face cream that is expensive. You know, we like expensive face creams, don't we? But we neglect our genitals. And postmenopausally, particularly when oestrogen deficiency hits, things become a lot more fragile, dry, sore. Itchy and using some topical therapies like you would a moisturizer on your face or your body is just as important. And there's some non hormonal lubricants and moisturizers that can make a massive difference to women, even the women who've said, I really can't have vaginal oestrogen. I've been told I mustn't have that because maybe they had womb cancer that was quite aggressive. They can use those non-hormonal lubricants. They're designed with pH balance in mind, looking at the delicate vaginal vulval skin post menopause
0: And where do you find out about things like that? I haven't seen any information, although vaginal atrophy was the only menopause poster in my GP the other day. I thought, oh, there you go. That's the okay face of, of the menopause. Not Yeah, face is possibly the wrong word. It's a really neglected area of
1: education. I mean, I have so many things all over my uh, literature on my website about vaginal treatments and lots of social media posts about it because it's the one aspect, isn't it? You're not going to go to the person you've never met in your life and start with the opening line I've got a dry vagina. Can you help me? (laughs) Women will normally test the water a bit. You know, I've got some flushes and sweats where I feel a bit anxious because they feel confident discussing that. And, And inevitably, I've been with them for half an hour at this point. And I say, You haven't touched on sexual function and vaginal symptoms. And even if we've had really good eye contact for that half hour, the eyes will suddenly look at the floor because it's embarrassing. We don't want to talk about it with someone that's alien to us. But it's really important we do explore it. So it's, you know, don't be frightened to go and ask for help with that issue if if you're experiencing problems.
0: And GPs should be able to prescribe all of these things.
1: A hundred percent. There's a vaginal oestrogen pessary that's recently been approved for over the counter prescriptions. It's called GINA10. It's basically a 10 microgram, very low dose vaginal oestrogen pessary. And we can have prescribed versions of that as well that your GP can give you. There's specific criteria that you've got to fulfil to have that from a chemist. Uh, You can't use it if your periods haven't stopped, for example. It's just the over the counter is is postmenopausal women. It's not for perimenopausal women given by the pharmacist, but it might be from your GP just because, you know, it's a strict group of women that could safely use it without problems from the
0: chemist. Yeah, over the counter. And so getting back to perimenopausal, there doesn't seem to be a huge amount of medical alternatives that help with the, I want to say, neurological issues that perimenopausal throws up, the low mood, the anxiety, the lack of joy. And is there anything you can prescribe that does help with that sort of thing?
1: Yes, and I think this is where it's really important when we look at perimenopause and menopause. We don't, first of all, assume it's depression and give antidepressants, but also that we don't assume it's all hormonal. So I see women who maybe have some underlying mood disturbance, think it's all menopause-driven and estrogen deficiency. They're on a wonderful dose of estrogen. They they are still feeling low and anxious. It's not hormonally driven in that circumstance. There can be women who have coexisting menopause oestrogen deficiency and mood disturbance so that is where using anti-anxiety medication antidepressant medication plus hrt is still an option so it's not saying you're depressed that's causing everything it's saying i've addressed the hormonal element of how you're feeling there may still be a primary mood disturbance underlying this, and let's address that separately.
0: It is very easy, and I find myself doing it. Once you've started down the menopause, it's all my hormones, you find yourself like, you know, I'm having a rubbish day, oh, maybe I need to up my dose. And you think, no, you're just having... A rubbish day. That's okay as well. Completely. HRT doesn't cure everything. It's not the
1: resolve everything that's going on in your life treatment. The other thing I would say is all these alternatives that we've talked about obviously can help with those mood disturbance if they have a use as a primary mood improving treatment alongside. The other thing I think that's often neglected is cognitive behavioural therapy.
0: Do you know what? I was just going to come to that. <laughs> so that is something that you offer in your clinic and that is something that has really had tangible results, hasn't it? Because a lot of alternatives, as we will come to later, it's a bit, you know, they sort of, is it really helping? How do we know? Is it a placebo effect? But CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy, is a real game changer.
1: For many women, yes. I think the difficulty is accessing it because it's not the same as all the other types of CBT we use for, say, depression, and anxiety. This is looking at The kind of pathway your emotions follow when you're experiencing physical symptoms. So a lady beautifully described this to me the other day and she could have HRT and, and that was clearly going to be the best option for her. But I'm a high flyer. I have to stand up in meetings and give a talk. And if I feel a flush coming on, before it really manifests, I'm already getting anxious. I'm already getting to that point where i lose my train of thought then i know my chest is going red then i know my face is going red then i know everyone in the room is looking at me and saying she's or she's having a hot flush and that makes the physical symptoms worse because we get anxious our heart starts to race we have an adrenaline surge we get more flushed we get more sweaty so cbt is, is trying to break that emotional feedback cycle of what's going on and saying okay you know this is happening but you can manage it. What things can you put into play to stop that escalation of of symptoms happening because of the way you deal with the physical symptom emotionally?
0: And just to be clear, it doesn't stop any of the physical symptoms. It just gives you a headspace to deal with them in a more positive way. Do we assume that people are noticing it more than they actually are? Is it worse on the inside out of a hot flush? Yes, if you survey your
1: employees who are menopausal, they will all be very aware of when they're experiencing symptoms, but the employer or the other people sat next to them will probably not even realise. And women are very, very good at learning to manage these symptoms practically and disguise them often. It's the colleague that intermittently nips outside for fresh air, but you don't know that that's what's going on or the colleague that's always got the window open next to them and the rest of the room is freezing in the middle of December. And actually, I think in in the current environment, it's wonderful that the discussion is happening within workplaces and people are being a bit more supportive. And, you know, the woman that is menopausal is, is allowed refreshment breaks to go to the toilet, get a glass of water. They've got fans, better ventilation, those kind of things. It's really, really important these modifications are put into place. But yes, definitely. If you're going through the symptoms yourself, you often feel internally, these are far more
0: pronounced and evident to those around you than they really are. And so that's where the anxiety starts to build. As you said, this patient of yours was saying she could feel it coming and that made it 10 times worse. So what does CBT actually do then? What tools does it give you? So it's
1: not something that's a quick fix. It's not like taking a pill and it all goes away. It's giving you strategies, practical ways of managing what you're going through and giving you strategies to cope with those symptoms Almost like coping mechanisms. Okay, what happens when you get a flush? Well, I get really uptight. I feel my heart racing. I know I'm going red. Okay, well, let's put that into context. Let's say you don't go red. Nobody's noticing. How does that impact on how you're feeling now? Well, if nobody notices, maybe I just need to take a deep breath and not worry about it. If no one else is realizing it, okay, let's put that into practice in another scenario when that happens again and you get another flush. Or I've got brain fog, I know I'm going to go into this meeting and I know I'm going to miss words and that's going to happen because I'm getting a hot flush. No, you've rehearsed that several times, haven't you? You know the words off by heart. If you have a flush, no one's going to realise you can control that. Give yourself two seconds, have a cold glass of water, regroup and then carry on with your talk and you know you can do that. And it's saying, let's try and modify that physical response to those symptoms to then make it less of an issue for you and you can cope with it far better.
0: And this is a 10 to 12 week course, is it, that you have to do for CBT? How speedy can it be? It's usually run maybe over four to six
1: sessions, once a fortnight maybe, but it's not a 10 minute job. It can be sort of an hour, an hour and a half session. It can be run as a one to one. It could be done in a group therapy session. So sometimes services are done uh, where you have a group of say six women all running the same course. So they get to know each other, which is really important with this because not feeling alone when you're going through all these symptoms particularly if you've survived cancer is is really important and and it's all about learning about what is happening when you have the physical symptoms then developing strategies to be able to manage those physical symptoms and not let them escalate um and then giving yourself time to reevaluate when those symptoms happen and feedback about how that affected you once you put those strategies into play
0: and can it help with insomnia Or is that just because it helps with night sweats and therefore that has a knock-on effect, as we say, to the insomnia?
1: Insomnia and CBT, I think, are so intrinsically linked. When I did the CBT course with the British Menopause Society, one of the most valuable pieces of information I learned was how our sleep works. And how much restful sleep you get in the first two to three hours after falling asleep. We all have fancy watches or things on our wrists that tell us what time we peed, what time we moved, what time the husband started to snore and the dog barked and how many exact minutes of restorative sleep we had. And inevitably they're inaccurate because you you turn over in bed and the, the watch tells you that you did so. But really, from the point of view of insomnia, those first few hours are the most productive in terms of restful sleep. I've been there with insomnia, particularly when I was pregnant. And it's that waking at 2, 3 a.m., well, I'm not going to get back to sleep. That's it. The night's ruined. I'm not going to function tomorrow. That task I was going to do is going to go out the window and all my plans have now gone down the toilet. And that's that catastrophizing you have, isn't it? 2, 3 o'clock
0: in the morning. You are describing me at 3 a.m. this morning. I was like, oh, no, I'm never going to sleep. I'm not going to function. Tomorrow and yeah. Whereas CBT would say, okay,
1: when that day happened, did you get through to the evening? Did you manage to do the task? Did you do them to your full potential, or were they not quite as good? But did you manage to function? And how did you sleep the next night? Well, actually, it wasn't that bad, and I did manage to get to. I didn't feel my best, but I survived, and I had a really good night's sleep the next night. So, okay, if you know you can do it, why do you then worry? Because if you wake up at two, three o'clock and you're worrying and you're getting anxious and uptight, you are not going to go back to sleep. So having that experience of I can get through this, I've got strategies to make this work. If I do need to go downstairs and sit and read a book for the rest of the night, I am going to survive tomorrow. I'm still going to get through the day. It's going to be okay.
0: So it is just a sort of way of relaxing yourself and saying, it's all okay. I can cope with this.
1: And giving you strategies to suppress that escalating anxiety and then aggravation of those symptoms. This is a simplistic way of discussing it.
0: Obviously, and we will come back to CBT in future episodes because I'm fascinated by it. Is it the only non-medical alternative that you can offer or the NHS could offer us?
1: Pretty much, yes. The other treatments are prescribed treatments. And obviously, I'm sure you're going to cover lots of natural alternatives that women may choose to use. And that's not necessarily my level of expertise. And I'm I'm happy to explore the different options. But from my perspective, the therapies I would recommend in clinics are either hormone therapy or alternatives, which
0: would be prescribed treatments and then CBT. Should we get on to natural alternatives? The top of this has to be lifestyle changes, doesn't it? Which actually... We should all be doing, shouldn't we, whether we're on HRT or not. These are exercise, healthy diet, reduce stress, sort out your sleeping. But it's all a bit... Wishy washy, I'm going to say. It just seems a bit like, you know, oh, are they really going to help me? Uh, Do lifestyle changes have a predominant effect?
1: Yes, they do. It was interesting. I was on a meeting recently with lots of other experts across the UK, and we were all talking about those patients with lots of lifestyle risks. So, obesity, smoking, alcohol, caffeine, lack of exercise. It's unrealistic if you're in the midst of menopause to be able to address all of those in one go. And I think that's where we maybe set the goalposts too high. I'm going to go on a diet, lose three stone, quit smoking and give up alcohol. I mean, that's never going to happen. Do one at a time and just give yourself a really achievable target because then you're going to reward yourself and it's going to give you positive momentum to do more.
0: Yeah, it shouldn't be another stick to beat ourselves with, should it?
1: No, no. And I think that's where, you know, the obese smoker that drinks excessively in front of me doesn't mean she can't have any treatment. I could still prescribe HRT if it's safe to do so. But actually, that might be the trigger to sleep improving, flushes and sweats resolving, which then help her with her lifestyle. And the lifestyle changes then provide even more benefits. So we know being obese, smoking, Excess caffeine, drinking excessively affects sleep, flush frequency, flush severity, sleep adversely affected with the the flushes, obviously, but also just in general, but also things like anxiety and our mood can be adversely affected. We all think of alcohol as something we go and enjoy, perhaps socially. But it's a real depressant and affects our sleep quality and duration. So addressing all of those are equally important.
0: And is there a certain type of exercise we should now be doing now that we're getting to this sort of second stage of our life? Should we still be pounding it at the gym? She says, not that I do, but we should we be changing our regimes? Not necessarily. And I think this is where it's difficult
1: to be prescriptive. It's what works for you. So again, you know, the expensive thousand pound bicycle in your house does not necessarily have to be purchased. If you walk your dog, but you were previously running and running is becoming more difficult because you're tired or it's painful or you're sleeping badly, you know, you don't have to run. If you can walk briskly enough that you get a little bit out of breath, if you're having a conversation with someone, that's effective cardiovascular exercise. So for many women, yes, it might be about adjusting exercise to then fit in with their lifestyle so that they can continue to do it regularly because that's the most important get five lots of half an hour a week if you can and a couple of strength-based exercise sessions as well that can be tins of beans or tomatoes in your kitchen doing some lunges with some resistance or a resistance band at home or some really good stretching, yoga, pilates, all of these different things. Do stuff that's achievable with what you have in your day-to-day life. If you set yourself unrealistic targets, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week for an hour, it's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, all of these things are easier said than done, aren't they? You say, I'm going to sort my entire life out. I'll be a new person in three months and then you're, yeah. And Where do you find out about alternatives? Because I think this is one of the main problems women have. There's a sort of lack of knowing who to trust about some of the more natural side of things.
1: So the first thing with regard to non-hormonal treatments, the best thing to do is to look at resources that is designed to help women who are experiencing the menopause. So this is the Women's Health Concern, which is the patient arm of the British Menopause Society. They've got a whole fact sheet on complementary and alternative therapies and also lifestyle changes in the menopause then you've got other websites like menopause matters which uh, again that's heather curry she's a a menopause specialist up in the north fantastic resource the daisy network which is specifically designed for women having an early menopause premature ovarian insufficiency patients look at the nhs because even if it's not specifically looking at menopause the nhs website has a fantastic amount of information on healthy living diet exercise nutrition nutrition etc. And then you need to be thinking about other information sources if you're going to try herbal treatments. There are resources, the rfarms.com resources, which looks at herbal medicine treatment. This is maybe where my level of expertise in this area is significantly lacking, India.
0: Well, I do grant that. You're not a herbalist. You can't be expected to talk about all of the different herbal remedies. And as you say, there isn't this really hard evidence based. But I think a lot of women do find anecdotal benefit from a lot of these remedies. And the thing now is that it's becoming a very burgeoning industry, isn't it? I mean, I had a quick look on Holland and Barrett and there were 45 individual products when you put menopause in. And the nice fact sheet says to look for a THR, R logo. That's the traditional herbal remedies logo. I had a quick look and I couldn't find it on any of the things. But then I suddenly thought, am I looking at vitamins? And it wouldn't be on vitamins.
1: Yes, vitamins might be slightly different, although a lot of vitamins, herbal treatments have overlap. So this is not my area of expertise. The British Herbal Medicine Association looks at herbal medicines use in the UK there's the National Institute of Medical Herbalists. The National Institute is like almost like the regulatory body for herbal practitioners. So if you're wanting to go and see somebody who maybe knows what they're talking about from the herbal
0: treatment, therapy side, then that would be your first port of call. That's probably as far as my knowledge goes. I absolutely understand that. But what I was wanting from you was some of the more medical concerns that might be around. Because I hear on the grapevine, things like black cohosh, they talk about liver damage. So I understand that it's not your area of expertise on what the benefits are. And I will go and talk to a herbalist about that, because I do think that is something that needs to be said. But I want a medic's point of view of, should we be worried about liver damage if we're taking black cohosh?
1: To a degree, yes. It's really important you look at the research and there are some studies that show people who've used black cohosh on their own back have had quite marked liver inflammation, hepatitis, and some... More concerningly, severe liver damage with some examples of people needing liver transplants because of, of liver failure, which is really concerning. My medic in me would say it's probably related to how much you use and how long you use it for and any other pre-existing medical conditions. And that's where it's really important if you're going to use a herbal therapist advice we still clarify with your doctor if there's any medical reason that they think that might not be appropriate. We can't advise specifically, yes, it's perfectly safe, but if you've got pre-existing liver disease, that might imply a level of caution. The other thing I would say is that there's often very limited data about efficacy, And these products are not cheap. So you're taking something that you're having to pay for that actually may not make any symptoms better when you compare it with placebos, non-active ingredients, or even things like oil of evening primrose when compared with black co-wash. The black co-wash wasn't necessarily better than the oil of evening primrose in improving menopausal symptoms. So why am I taking it? Is it safe? What is the evidence? Should I be doing this?
0: The Women's Health Concern fact sheet did say that it helped with vasomotor but not low mood or anxiety. So that makes you think if it's something like the Women's Health Concern you think well there must be some evidence that it does help.
1: Yeah In the flush side of things there's limited evidence there's some but again the problem with these treatments is that the studies are very very small. We're talking at most maybe a couple of hundred women whereas the trials we look at with the drug therapies we're talking hundreds of thousands of women, millions of of women sometimes so you get more power your study means more the more women you enroll into it to show benefits on a different line red clover does have a bit more evidence to support its benefit. Again, limited, but improvement in quality of life and flushes compared with placebo. But again, trials are very small.
0: And the Women's Health concern said that benefits may not last for more than a few weeks. But I suppose then if you're taking a pill every day with red clover in it, which a lot of these complexes do have.
1: They do. And I think the concern I have with these treatments is women going and using them who think they can't have HRT because they've had a hormone sensitive cancer and therefore thinking these are safe because most of these herbal products that show efficacy are phytoestrogens. They contain isoflavones, which are a similar makeup molecularly to estrogen. And the problem is, is we don't have data saying that they're safe in women with hormone sensitive cancers. So That's the group I'm concerned about, the breast cancer patients. You go and buy red clover thinking it's safe, but actually there's no data to support it's safe. We'd still advise caution.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, so that is something to flag up because you wouldn't have thought red clover had anything to do with oestrogen. And especially if you're not taking HRT because you're worried about oestrogen-sensitive breast cancer and then you're having soy and red clover and you could be doing yourself damage that way. Absolutely. This is where really, really important you check from the medical perspective,
1: that viewpoint on whether what you're using is safe or not.
0: So we all know about soy containing, as you just said, isoflavones, and that is a sort of oestrogen type compound. So I feel that if you eat soybeans, you're going to be adding natural oestrogen. Is that a complete fallacy? should I stop eating my soybeans? I think you've got the right idea there. It's like a plant-based
1: oestrogen. So it's an oestrogen-like effect coming from plants. This is the concern if you've had hormone-sensitive cancer is that we don't have a study that compared women with a history of breast cancer using lots of soy or red clover or similar with a group of women who were post-breast cancer who didn't And how many of them got recurrence and how many of them didn't. But we also know too much soy can be linked with thyroid disease as well. It's not a case of going out there and eat loads and loads and loads of soy-containing products. And this is where I feel very comfortable in the advice I give because I've got loads of data to back it up. And most women now are really open to that discussion with evidence and understanding the risks and benefits and being happy with what they're doing is, is safe, or if there is a risk associated, what exactly is that risk? Can you quantify that for me? And with these products, it's that's where we have limited evidence, and we can't give that same risk-benefit discussion.
0: And that is the thing, isn't it? Personal choice. You have to be armed with your personal risk and benefit equation. Exactly. Thank you so much, Katie. As ever, you've been brilliant. And I know that this was asking you to go slightly out of your comfort zone. So thank you for talking to us about this. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Pleasure. You'll find links to all the websites Dr. Katie mentioned in the show notes. Next time, I'm talking to Jo Darling, an acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner whose passion for helping women through the menopause led her to create Menopoised, a little magnet which helps alleviate hot flushes. And we discuss how we should all be embracing the ancient Chinese practice of Yang Sheng, the nourishment of life, so we can live well and live long into our second spring. If you want to join in, head to pod.co.uk. You'll find our pod forum full of women just like you, finding the funny in what we're all going through and sharing stories so we never have to feel like we're going it alone again. And if you have a question about anything you've heard or a hot topic you'd like to hear covered on the pod, then email me on bmoreorcapod at gmail.com. Or follow me at b.more.orca.